Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, we invited Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty to discuss her new biography, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. She talks about the role Mrs. Reagan played as a political advisor to Ronald Reagan and also as a mother. Ms. Tumulty also talks about some of the causes Nancy Reagan took up as First Lady, including the fight against drugs and AIDS policy. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Karen Tumulty, your new biography of Nancy Reagan, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, says in the intro that she exercised an influence unlike any First Lady before or since. Explain how. Well, the thing to understand about Ronald Reagan is that you know, as affable as he was, as as gifted as he was at connecting with the American public, he was at heart a loner. He liked people, but he didn't need them, with the exception of one person. Nancy Reagan was truly the only human being in the world to whom Ronald Reagan was close. And she was also just a, a fierce guardian, I think, would be the, the right word, of his, of his image, of his personal care and safety. Um, she, she, she was fearless, I think. And, and so as a result, she was almost, she was, in fact, you know, the one truly disinterested observer of all the drama that goes on in a White House, because she had but one agenda, which was Ronald Reagan's well-being and success. And she was also, she had better instincts about people than he did, and sort of a better nose for trouble than he did. So the people in the administration who understood all this, who recognized her power, people like Secretary of State George Shultz, or White House Chief of Staff, later Treasury Secretary James Baker, uh, really understood that she was a very important, a crucial ally to have if you were trying to get Ronald Reagan on board something. She always, and you quote her saying this, always uh, said that she was never involved in policy. It was, uh, but that's really not true, is it? Oh, she said, I, I just get involved in people issues. But of course, Susan, I mean, as anybody who has been in Washington for more than five minutes knows, people issues are policy. If, if you can have an influence on who is in the room when there is a decision to be made or a policy to discuss, you can often preordain the outcome. But it seemed in the stories that you told that it went beyond that in some cases where she really saw a policy objective and worked these people and her husband in ways to achieve them. One of those is the Cold War and the Gorbachev uh, meetings, which uh, I wanted to start with, and then we'll go back in time. But it was accepted in the Washington Post. And what you tell in the story there is that she had a serious impact on the uh, detente between Russia and uh, the United States. Can you tell me some of that story? Certainly. Um, Nancy Reagan was absolutely determined that her husband would be remembered as a great president. 
she wanted him to go down in history as a peacemaker and not as his image, which was as a, a warmonger, you know, some a hardline anti-communist presiding over the biggest peacetime military buildup in history, surrounded by, you know, a lot of hardliner hawks who believed there could never be any such thing as a working relationship with Moscow. Um, she also understood her husband in a way that a lot of the people around him did not, that along with this hardline cold warrior image he had, there was a real idealist that Ronald Reagan believed in the biblical prophecy of Armageddon. He was idealistic enough to believe in that it was possible to have a world without nuclear weapons. And so I opened the book on a scene, a story that George Schultz told me. And that is, it's February of 1983. Schultz is pretty new as Secretary of State, and he really doesn't know the Reagans all that well. Washington gets socked in by one of the biggest blizzards of the 20th century. So as the city is digging out, Nancy Reagan calls up George Schultz, who has just returned from a foreign trip that included a stop in China. And she says, why don't you and your wife come over? Let's just have dinner, the four of us, tonight. Schultz and his wife go over. They're having what he thinks is a nice social evening. And all of a sudden, both of the Reagans start peppering him with questions about the Chinese. Like, what are they like as people? Do they have a sense of humor? Do they have a bottom line? How do you find their bottom line? And from there, Ronald Reagan begins to talk about his ideas for engaging Moscow. And that is the moment where George Schultz, away from the sort of, you know, hardline councils of the Reagan administration, begins to understand that this president is dying to engage the Soviet Union, that he has absolute confidence in his own abilities as a negotiator. And he also realizes that this was not a social evening, that Nancy Reagan set up this dinner specifically so that George Schultz could see and understand something about her husband and something that had the potential to change history. He also recognizes in that moment that Nancy Reagan is an absolutely crucial ally to have. He, he told me, I always figured anybody with any brains would make friends with the first lady. Nancy Reagan actually encouraged her husband to have direct conversation with Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev seems like an important factor in this. It couldn't possibly never have happened if it were a different Russian leader. That's right. And in the first couple of years of the Reagan administration, in fact, it, one thing that's important, it's a very, it seems like a historic footnote, but it's, it's really important. Right after Reagan barely survives an assassin's bullet, and he, he realizes he, in his religious belief that, that God has spared him for a purpose, he sits down and he writes by hand on a legal pad, a very kind of idealistic letter to the then leader of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev, saying, you and I are the only two people who can bring about peace. 
he shows the letter to some of his top advisors, uh, and they're kind of horrified that you know that a president would be sort of so open. And in fact, Alexander Haig, then the Secretary of State, says, you know, if if we're going to be writing letters to the Kremlin, you know, the, the pros over at the State Department should do it. So they come back with a draft that's very conventional, and Reagan almost. He's going, well, maybe you're right. And that point, Michael Deaver says, you know, Mr. President, nobody elected the National Security Council. Nobody elected the State Department. If this is the letter you want to send, send it. So Reagan does send this letter. But the reply from Moscow is ice, nothing. Over the next couple of years, Brezhnev dies two other Soviet leaders die. And, you know, it's essentially the, the leadership there keeps changing until um, until the, the Kremlin takes a generational U-turn and picks as its leader this 50-something up-and-comer, Mikhail Gorbachev. And that really is the moment. Uh, Reagan had already been told by Margaret Thatcher keep an eye on this guy. He, he is a different kind of Soviet leader. And the two of them really do have both the shared goals, but the personal chemistry that make the, the end of the Cold War possible. And all along, uh, Nancy Reagan is just pushing for this first summit. Uh, as Michael Deaver would write, you know, she never let an opportunity pass. She was like badgering people at every White House social event. She would pull Schultz aside or pull Defense Secretary Weinberger aside and just like, when is this summit going to happen? The Gorbachev story is also uh, a, a window into a, a thread that runs all the way through your biography, and that is uh, the um, flip side of, of affability, and that is the iciness that Nancy Reagan could display toward, toward people almost chemistry-like. And Raisa Gorbachev is one of those people that you said she took an instant dislike to. Explain that aspect of Nancy Reagan's character before you talk about the Raisa Gorbachev relationship. Well, basically, um, one of the defining uh, characteristics of Nancy Reagan is her her fearlessness. As I write in the book, she very rarely set foot in the West Wing, but when she was displeased about something, everybody who worked there knew it. And people who were not in her favor tended not to last very long in their jobs, most famously during Iran-Contra when she engineers the firing of White House Chief of Staff Don Regan. But essentially, she, she has this incredibly attuned radar to people, to what their agendas are. As their son Ron told me, you know, what she understood that my father didn't always understand is that just because somebody talks a good game doesn't necessarily mean they're on board with your agenda, that they may have agendas of their own. Ronald Reagan had a tendency to trust people, to delegate. Uh, Nancy Reagan came at things the exact opposite direction. To her, trust was something that had to be earned and that it was withdrawn at the first sign that somebody was operating on their own agenda and not her husband's. While we're staying with the Gorbachev story, let's listen to Nancy Reagan herself talking about the relationship between the two of them during this summit period. Why did we hear so much about your relationship with Mrs. Gorbachev? 
I'm sure you remember those stories. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I guess because when, well, it was a big, I mean, this was the first time that there had been a meeting between us and the and, uh, Soviet Union. But then when they got over it, when we got over there and the meetings started, the press didn't have anything. <laughs> they couldn't get into the meetings. They couldn't talk to my husband or, or Gorbachev. And so they concentrated on Raisa and me more than I thought was necessary. Well, is that exactly true? <laughs> oh, it's not exactly true. You know, it's really interesting. Um, these two women were so alike in some ways. They were very, well, first of all, Soviet first ladies are, are usually, a, back then at least, were usually a mystery. Uh, the average citizen didn't know much about them. Sometimes they didn't even know what their first names were. Raisa Gorbachev was very, very different, a brilliant, outspoken academic, very close to her husband, as Nancy Reagan was, very fashionable. She, she would show up at the, in Paris at the Pierre Cardin fashion shows. She was criticized for some of the same things uh, that Nancy Reagan was criticized for, you know, being ostentatious or, you know, too, you know, too aloof. So you might think these two would get along, but from that first meeting, which, by the way, was the first time an American first lady and a Soviet first lady had met since Nina Khrushchev and young Jacqueline Kennedy did in the early 1960s, but they do not hit it off. Um, in her book, Nancy Reagan describes Raisa Gorbachev as sort of constantly lecturing her on the glories of Leninism and talking down to her and, you know, being rude to her. But every single time there is a summit, it's just the two of them have a chance to sort of pick up where they left off. But it's really interesting because in December of 1988, the last time they would meet while Ronald Reagan is president. By then, he is an outgoing president. There is already a president-elect. The two of them, Nancy Reagan and Risa Gorbachev, get together in New York at a meeting of the United Nations where Gorbachev has announced yet another breakthrough in, you know, de-escalating the Cold War. And Raisa says to Nancy, you know, it was really history that put both of us here next to our husbands at this moment. So let's go back in time. Uh, another thing that is uh, represented not exactly as it happened, as you write in the book, is her birthplace, Nancy Reagan's birthplace. In the Ronald Reagan Library, it says what about where she was born and, and what's the real story? Well, this was actually, the library has it correctly, but I, when I was in the library, I came across her official biography as California First Lady. And it claims that she was born in Chicago, the only daughter of Dr. Loyal and Edith Davis. In fact, um, she was born in New York in 1921, although for decades she would claim it was 1923. 
And she was the product of a very bad match between an ambitious actress and an unsuccessful car salesman, whose marriage was effectively over by the time this very inconveniently timed baby arrived. So her parents, her biological parents, go their separate ways. And as soon as Nancy is out of diapers, her mother, she continues to pursue her acting career, pursue her very busy social life, and she leaves her daughter for the next six years with relatives in Maryland. This child spends six years yearning for this absent mother, and it really leaves a shadow on her spirit, a wariness on her spirit that never really lifts. She's convinced that, you know, she's insecure. She, she believes that life is a trap door, that no matter how good things are, no matter how successful things she is, her husband is, that it could all fall apart at a moment's notice. And certainly that seems to be confirmed two months into Ronald Reagan's presidency when he almost dies from an assassin's bullet. But before I go too hard on on Edith Luckett, her her mother, the actress, um, a product of Washington, D.C., it's also important to know that in 1929, Edith shows up in Bethesda, Maryland, where Nancy is living with relatives, and announces she's getting married, and that the two of them are moving together to Chicago. She is marrying Dr. Loyal Davis, a pioneering neurosurgeon. Now think of this, this is the 1920s. He's a neurosurgeon. It's a field in its infancy. But that they were finally going to be together. And in Loyal Davis, who is a sort of stern, forbidding figure, Nancy Davis finds the second most important man of her life. Her father the only person she would ever truly consider her father, uh, she just reveres him. Um, And still, though, she's almost an outsider in her own home. Uh, Loyal Davis does not do what she really wants more than anything in the world, which is to adopt her and give her his name. She actually has to engineer her own adoption when she is a teenager, not because, he would later write, not because he did not feel affection for this child, but that because her biological father was still alive and her biological grandmother was and that he just didn't feel it would be proper. So Nancy, then Nancy Robbins, really does. She takes it into her own hands. She finds a neighbor who's a lawyer, says, how do you go about getting adopted? And essentially presents her biological father with papers, you know, renouncing his own his own claims to her. So let's jump forward in the story when you're talking about how she was raised to the Reagan's own parenting skills because there's stories throughout the book of their interactions or lack of interactions with their children. How would you describe the way that the Reagan's approached parenting? You know, I think I would describe it the way her daughter Patty Davis described it in her eulogy at Nancy Reagan's funeral. That the Reagan's were so closely bound together 
a, a complete circle unto themselves, that there really wasn't any room for other people, that, that everyone else just sort of floated around them on the outside. Including their children. Including their children. It really is the, the sort of painful, tragic, collateral damage, I think, that accompanies their love story. And Nancy, Nancy Reagan herself writes in her autobiography, she writes, all I ever wanted to be was a good wife and mother, and I guess I succeeded more at the first than at the second. In fact, the dedication of her book is to Ronnie, who always understood, and to my children, who I hope will understand someday. There were four children in the Reagan marriage, not all of them to Nancy and Ron. Would you explain the the uh, lineage and their place and order in, in the in their lives. Sure. Um, so when Nancy Davis, young MGM starlet, meets Ronald Reagan, Hollywood actor, in 1949, he is coming off a divorce from his first wife, Jane Wyman, Academy Award-winning actress, that just absolutely devastated him. She essentially got bored with him and walked out of the marriage. But there are two children from this marriage. There were actually three. Um, there is the daughter they had biologically together, the son, Michael, that they adopted, and then a baby daughter, Christine, that Jane Wyman and Ronald Reagan have late in their marriage, really, as they are essentially trying to save their marriage. This baby is born prematurely. She lives less than a day. So coming into her courtship of Ronald Reagan, um, these two kids, Maureen and Michael, are really sort of part of the package. And then shortly after the Reagans are married, they have their daughter, Patty, and then she is followed a few years later by the youngest Reagan, Ron. You describe them in the courtship days of the Reagans as her being very attentive to Ronald Reagan's two children uh, in the Wyman marriage, Maureen and Michael. But that changed as their political career progressed. She began, as you say, to write them out of the script. Why, why did she approach it that way? What was the thinking? Well, remember, Ronald Reagan is running for California governor in the mid-60s. A divorced politician is a very, very rare and awkward thing in those days. So both Nancy and Ronald Reagan's top political strategist, Stuart Spencer, who was just an incredible source for the book, decide essentially that, um, you know, these reminders of this failed marriage should be essentially written out of the picture. And there's a really poignant scene in the book, though, because Maureen Reagan, the eldest of all the Reagan children, is actually very politically engaged. She became a Republican before her father did. And she is asked to introduce him early in his gubernatorial campaign at an event for Republican women in San Diego. And she, the campaign hands her this piece of paper, this sheet of her father's biography to read. And it says, Ronald and Nancy Reagan are the parents of two children. 
Ron and Patty. And it just so hurts her to see herself written out of her own father's life story. So Maureen just discards the script and and tells sort of warm stories about her childhood and Michael's childhood and, and what kind of father, you know, they they had. Staying with the children for a bit, so the two children that they had together, uh, Patty Davis uh, and Ron Reagan Jr., their relationships uh, were also challenged, especially Patty Davis. How did she end up becoming Patty Davis as opposed to Patty Reagan? And did they ever reconcile their fraught relationship? This is, um, I think, the the story that is, of all the four children, the the relationship between Nancy and her daughter Patty is the most fraught. Um, Patty is headstrong. She is sort of finding her own way in the world. She is a becomes a political activist. She re- rejects pretty much everything that her father stands for. In fact, she says she couldn't even bring herself to vote for him for president. She couldn't vote against him, but she couldn't vote for him. And part a lot of this plays out in her struggles with her mother, which are really, they just go on for decades. But finally, she at one point she is living with a member of the band, the Eagles, from the 1970s. And she, actually, she is co-authors one of the songs on one of their biggest albums. So the question is... How is she going to identify herself for this writing credit? By the way, Patty is just an incredibly gifted writer. And she struggles with it. And she finally decides she is going to take her mother's maiden name, Patty Davis. And it takes her, even, even herself, it takes her a long time to understand why she does that. She says, as difficult as things were with my mother, she was the parent who was always there. This goes on. They have an estrangement that goes on off and on for many, many years. And finally, it is tragedy that reconciles them. It is Ronald Reagan's diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And Patty, who has been sort of out and away from the family for years, returns She's living in New York, moves back to California to be there for her mother and to be there for her father. The relationship is never entirely smooth, but in the two of them, they, they do find a connection and a peace before, before it's too late. Maureen died of cancer about 20 years ago. Three of the Reagan children still alive. Did any of them speak to you for this project? Um, Ron Reagan spoke with me. Michael and Patty did not, but I relied heavily on the books that they themselves wrote. Dennis Ravel, who is Maureen's widower, was also quite helpful. Ron was not only spoke to me, but he helped me in things where I needed a blood relative. For instance, I was able to get into Nancy's, then Anne Frances Robbins's school records going back to kindergarten uh, because Ron got Sidwell Friends School here in Washington to release them 
to me. I also spoke to um, Nancy's stepbrother, Richard, who uh, survived her and, you know, was just a font of just wonderful stories. So in the political career, um, let's focus on the White House years because that's really uh, the subject of the book. But before the White House years, there were several campaigns for the presidency, uh, two of which were obviously not only unsuccessful but painful for Nancy Reagan. You write that the 1976 campaign was one that she remembered more poignantly than any of the successful campaigns. Why was that one so hurtful to her? Um, well, first of all, it's you know important to know that this this pol- going into politics was something that neither of the Reagans would have envisioned when they fell in love in the early 1950s. Well, let me just stop you for a second. Did I read that Jane Wyman in The Divorce described him as incessantly talking about politics? <laughs> he, he is, although at that point he's still kind of a New Deal Democrat. But the, the kind of politics he's talking about are he's the head of the Screen Actors Guild. They're, they're really kind of union politics. Uh, and yes, they just bored the life out of Jane Wyman. So it was a different time and a different kind of thinking, and it did surprise them that their, their path evolved in this direction then. And when, when the, uh, after Barry Goldwater's just landslide defeat in 1964, a group of donors, Ronald Reagan had been out campaigning for him, come to him and say, think about running for governor of California. Nancy Reagan's baptism into life as a political spouse could hardly have been rockier. And in Sacramento, you see, she's very naive. She she kind of bumbles around. She gets on everybody's nerves in the governor's office. But by this 1976 campaign, where Ronald Reagan decides to, to take on a sitting Republican president in the White House, Gerald Ford, just an incredible undertaking. And by the way, he almost beats him for the Republican nomination. But you also see Nancy Reagan's shrewdness and sophistication really grow. Uh, She really begins to step into her own right as a politician. But yes, she would later write that, you know, there had never been a a campaign with with so many what-ifs, you know, if we had the money to go into this state, if if we had stayed in New Hampshire a couple of extra days when we thought we were going to win, you know, so many things that she would just go over and over and over again in her mind. Uh, so she did say that, that 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 campaign sticks with her more than any other. And four years later, 1980, Ronald Reagan is not all that sure that he wants to make another run for the White House. And it is really Nancy who is telling him, you've got to do this. This is your moment. When they arrive in Washington, you talk about, describe them as if he were Teflon, she's Velcro. Uh, And uh, given the fact that she learned lessons in Sacramento and had gone through a rough period and then found a way to get involved in issues and rehabilitate herself. Why did she have such a difficult time in Washington, D.C.? Why did the lessons not transfer? This is the great conundrum about Nancy Reagan. She is so skillful, so shrewd, so attuned to her husband's image, and yet she is just absolutely clueless 
when it comes to her own. And so they get to Washington. The United States is in the middle of what would become the worst recession since the Great Depression. And Nancy Reagan decides that this is the moment to collect a lot of private donations to refurbish the White House and to um, to buy a very expensive new set of $1,000 a place setting White House China. On, and they announce it on the very day that the Reagan administration, which is cutting back on social programs, announces that ketchup would be considered a vegetable for nutritional standards on school lunch menus. And she just sort of has one after another of these unforced errors. By the way, the the China, which becomes so symbolic of how clueless she is, I discovered in my research that Eleanor Roosevelt could have warned her against this because Eleanor Roosevelt also bought an expensive set of China during the Great Depression. And unlike Nancy's, which was privately funded, Eleanor Roosevelt paid for it with taxpayer money and ended up having to have a big news conference to explain that her new China was actually putting people to work in the Great Depression. So um, so the other thing Nancy Reagan does is she does something that's very common in Hollywood, but forbidden in politics, which is that she borrows designer clothes, very expensive clothes, jewelry, and doesn't always return them and also doesn't report them as gifts. And ultimately, this would create a gigantic tax headache for the Reagans, who the IRS launches an investigation at the end of his presidency and and tells them they've got $3 million worth of unreported gifts here. So you report that at the end of 1981, their first year in the White, in the White House, say that she had the lowest approval rating of any modern first lady. What did she do to turn that around? Um, one, one thing is she comes to the realization that if her husband is going to succeed, she is going to have to succeed as well. She does this in small but very meaningful ways. For instance, um, in Washington, there's this annual dinner, the the gridiron dinner. It's a big press dinner. You you know, everybody sort of who's anybody's there, ambassadors, Supreme Court justices, senators, congressmen. And um, she's sitting there, and they're making fun of her in this show that they do on stage, and she disappears. And so people at the head table are going, boy, she must be really mad that they're they're singing this song, Secondhand Rose, as a parody of her. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this woman in this outlandishly tacky getup steps onto the stage. And it takes the audience a moment to realize that the first lady is standing there in front of them. And she sings a version of Secondhand Rose that she calls Secondhand Clothes, making fun of herself. And so people, for the first time, realized that she actually has a sense of humor. And Ronald Reagan, she didn't even tell him she was going to do this. And he says, he gets up to give his own speech and says, I came here a happy husband. I'm leaving a stage door Johnny. But the other thing she does is she takes on some causes that have meant a lot to her over the years. 
she gets out and begins to advocate against drug use by young people. She resumes her very active participation in the Foster Grandparents Program. Um, and really, you do see her image begin to improve starting around 1982. The drug issues was the Just Say No campaign. Uh, we have a bit of video of the two of them. Uh, it's from later on in their presidency, but this was an issue that she attended to through many of the years of, uh, they were in the White House. Let's listen to her and come back and talk about it. Drug abuse costs you and your fellow Americans at least $60 billion a year. From the early days of our administration, Nancy has been intensely involved in the effort to fight drug abuse. Her personal observations and efforts have given her such dramatic insights that I wanted her to share them with you this evening. Nancy? Thank you. As a mother, I've always thought of September as a special month, a time when we bundled our children off to school to the warmth of an environment in which they could fulfill the promise and hope in those restless minds. But so much has happened over these last years, so much to shake the foundations of all that we know and all that we believe in. Today, there's a drug and alcohol abuse epidemic in this country, and no one is safe from it. So one of the things one learns reading your book is that the irony is that even as she was promoting Just Say No, she herself had an issue with prescription drugs. That's correct. Um, it, the, and you have to really go back to the 1950s. Again, as I said, she, she had this very anxious personality. I mean, she was just very, very tightly wound. And often what would happen when women in particular would go to doctors back then is the doctor would hand them a sedative you know hand them they became known as the the milltown generation as for one of the popularly prescribed uh, tranquilizers that were often prescribed for women but yes as she goes through the trauma of the assassination attempt on her husband, a lot of the other pressures that were on her in the White House, she does develop a prescription drug addiction that is serious enough to be of concern to not one but two White House physicians. Um, Was this a surprise to you in your research? Is this anything in your reporting that you had ever heard about before? um, I... it was certainly nothing I had ever heard about, and I think probably now, certainly these days, we look at prescription drugs very differently now that we've been through the opioid epidemic. But I think back then, people would have thought, well, it's being prescribed by a doctor, so of course it's fine. But yes, she did have a dependency on it. And, um, you know, heavy use of sleeping pills to get to, to you know, sleep at night and sedatives during the day. This And Patty even writes in her memoir that it goes back to the 1950s where she thought, you know, her mother was taking too many diet pills and, you know, which are uppers, so then you have to take downers. Um, and at one point, Patty goes to her father and says, why does mommy take so many pills? And Ronald Reagan says to Patty, because you upset her so much. The other question I wanted to ask about the Just Say No campaign overall, how is it viewed in the lens of history? You know, people these days tend to sort of roll their eyes at Just Say No. It it was a very simple 
slogan, and people would sometimes now dismiss it as a very simplistic slogan. And also, critics of the drug policies of the Reagan administration would say, oh, this was just family-friendly cover for mass incarceration, uh, which in particular began putting, you know, a lot of men of color in prison for drug offenses, and also as family-friendly cover for the fact that the Reagan administration was cutting drug treatment, drug rehabilitation programs. But I also found, I, I went back and I looked at the data, and there's something called the Monitoring the Future Project, which really is the best kind of long-term, uh, you know, linear look at the attitudes of young people about drugs. And Just Say No was aimed at very young children. It was aimed at elementary school age children. And if you look at the data, you really do see a dramatic shift from the late 1970s where most kids would say, well, you know, marijuana is not a big deal and I, I wouldn't think any less of a friend who uses drugs to attitudes really, really shift in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, they begin once Nancy Reagan is off the scene and Just Say No is off the scene, they begin to shift back. And I also interviewed Joe Califano. He is no Republican. He was he was Jimmy Carter's HEW secretary. He was LBJ's top domestic policy advisor. He runs a big center at Columbia University that looks at substance abuse. And he believes that Just Say No was incredibly effective. In fact, he ended up putting Nancy Reagan on his board. The other issue that uh, had Nancy Reagan's hand in it was the AIDS crisis uh, that first became apparent during the early years of the Reagan White House. How did she influence the direction that the president and his advisors ended up taking regarding AIDS, and how long did it take? Well, first of all, we should stipulate that the Reagan administration's failure to confront the AIDS crisis, to recognize it for what it was, and to deal with it as a health issue is one of the greatest scars on its legacy, one that will never be erased in in the deaths of tens of thousands of people. But in my research, um, I discovered that Nancy Reagan became attuned to what was going on much, much earlier than her husband did, in part because her son Ron, who is in New York dancing with the Joffrey Ballet, is really seeing the toll up close that AIDS is taking. And Ron told me that he, his mother understood this, that he and his mother would try and find opportunities to sort of take his father aside and convince him that this is serious, that it is going on, that it needs to be dealt with. Finally, you know, it, it takes him until his second term to even use the word AIDS. He, it takes him all the way until 1987 before he gives a major address on it. But by the time he does, Nancy Reagan is determined that this speech is not going to be written by the conservatives, 
in the Reagan administration. The people who believe that AIDS is not a health crisis, it's a moral crisis, that it's essentially, you know, retribution for homosexuality. She refuses to allow the West Wing to write this speech. She goes out and finds, uses her own favorite outside speechwriter, Landon Parvin. Parvin, in his research, realizes that Ronald Reagan has never even had a conversation with his own Surgeon General, Everett Koop, about this. So he gets Nancy to set up a long overdue meeting with Everett Koop, but some of the conservatives in the White House get wind that this is happening. So they sort of set it up almost like a cabinet meeting and it becomes this huge argument about, you know, Coop wants Reagan to say that, you know, you can't get AIDS from swimming pools and mosquitoes or from having your food prepared by somebody who's HIV positive to, to really deal not only with the health crisis itself, but the, the sort of bigotry and, and you know, the, that, that is accompanying it, the stigmas that are being put, that are really forcing AIDS victims even further underground. So there is this massive argument. I found all the notes in the Reagan Library, and the speech didn't do enough. But if you could see some of the things that, that some of the conservative advisors were trying to put into the speech, it's really pretty, pretty horrifying. And again, uh, finally, Lyndon Parvin says he wins most of his arguments in drafting this speech by finally saying this is the way the First Lady wants it. And ultimately, when Reagan finally appoints a commission to look at the AIDS epidemic, um, it is on Nancy Reagan's insistence that one of the experts be openly gay. Um, this is something that is very controversial at the time. Uh, Pat Buchanan, the, you know, who had been White House communications director, Gary Bauer, uh, even people like Senator Gordon Humphrey, conservative from New Hampshire, are saying, you know, we cannot be appointing people to federal commissions because of their bedroom habits. But this is fine. You know, there is, in fact, an openly gay member of this commission. And as someone tell one of the white top officials at the White House tells the New York Times he's there because Nancy Reagan insisted that he be there. We have about 12 minutes left. So many stories, and <laughs> we can't get to uh, even a small handful of them. But I do want to get on the record her role in Iran-Contra. You know, I think that chapter is really the heart of my book. Um, when Iran-Contra happens, and Nancy Reagan, you know, her, her big allies in the West Wing were James Baker and Michael Deaver. They were her allies, they were also her early warning system. But by the second term, when Don Regan is running this White House chief of staff running the West Wing, her intelligence network is essentially shut down. So, you know, she is shocked to discover there's this kind of off-the-shelf, you know, foreign policy operation going on within the White House. So she, she really 
almost single-handedly runs the rescue effort. She pushes her very, very stubborn husband to shake up the White House staff, beginning with firing his autocratic chief of staff. This is a, an operation that takes her months, and many, many people over here at the Reagans arguing about this. And at various times, Ronald Reagan tells her, get off my back, or saltier versions of that. But just as importantly, she realizes that her husband is not going to get through this most serious crisis of his presidency unless he can admit to the country, and just as importantly, admit to himself that he has traded arms to Iran, one of America's enemies, as essentially a ransom payment for U.S. hostages that were being held in the Middle East. This is something that Reagan kept insisting he hadn't done, that this was really a diplomatic opening, which, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it's also in violation of what he had said was U.S. policy. But she finally, um, and again, I detail at great length in the book, finally gets him to the place where he is willing, as I said, to admit to the country and face up himself to what was really going on here. Wanted to talk about the, uh, after they leave the White House, the short amount of time they have together before his Alzheimer's diagnosis. Uh, we have a, a clip again of her talking about, uh, uh, about the state he's in at the time the interview happens. Let's watch that and talk about how she approached her safekeeping of him and his memory during that period. Let's watch. I mean, I'm not the only person there. Many, many, many people out there who are caregivers and, and uh, it's very difficult to watch somebody you love. What, what kind of shape is the president in now? We heard yesterday from John Barletta that uh, he still recognizes him. And... <laughs> but uh, John, I think, was, was referring back to an <laughs> another year <laughs> because he doesn't go for walks or he doesn't swim anymore, any of the things that John was talking about. What have you learned about dealing with illness? And how did you deal with it when it was in the White House itself? What were your, did you have a technique or advice you could give others? <laughs> you just, you just do it. You just get up and take each day as it comes and put one foot in front of the other. I, I don't know how, how, and you love. <sighs> How did she approach the, the years of his illness? Well, she would later describe it as a crash course in patience. Um, she becomes, and again, I, I go on at great length at what life was like for her. She becomes the caregiver of his physical well-being, um, protecting him not only physically, but protecting his dignity but she also becomes, at that point, the caregiver, the shaper of his legacy. Um, typically, presidents live for decades after they are out of office. They really have a chance to write for themselves the first draft of how they are going to be viewed by history. 
Ronald Reagan, who became incapacitated so soon after he was out of office, was essentially denied that. So it really does fall on Nancy Reagan. She devotes herself to building the library. Um, she she is very wary of people on the right who would invoke her husband's name, invoke his image for causes that she was not necessarily sure Ronald Reagan would have signed on to, but that would have represented his values. She also confronts the fact that on the left, there are still a lot of people, including serious historians who will claim, oh, he was just an actor. He was just reading lines that someone else had written for him. So what she does, one of the things she does, is she decides to release publicly his handwritten diaries. Uh, Almost every day of his presidency, he would write in his own hand what was going on, what he was thinking. They become a huge bestseller, and I must say were incredibly helpful to me in researching this book. She also releases a half century of his handwritten letters, letters with world leaders, but also letters with a woman who was running one of his fan clubs back when when he was an actor and with whom he'd stayed in touch. She releases the handwritten drafts of the speeches that he was going around giving in the country in the years as he was thinking about running for president. And you really can see in those, those speeches in particular that his philosophy of government uh, was really fully formed and that it really did come from Ronald Reagan himself. In the few minutes we have left, uh, you've covered an awful lot of political figures over your years of reporting on Washington. How did you come to write about Nancy Reagan? Well, it was not my idea. Um, Simon & Schuster and my editor there, Priscilla Payton, who is a good, good friend and also was my editor when I was at Time Magazine, came to me in, it must have been the early fall of 2016, and she says, we would like a big biography of Nancy Reagan. She had just died a few months before. Do you want to write it? And I don't know why this idea just suddenly struck me. I didn't know that much about her. I didn't have any real preconceptions about her. I just knew that she seemed like a really complicated, interesting person. And, you know, I'm, I'm such an astute political analyst that, again, this is the fall of 2016, and I'm thinking, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be such a conventional president. Maybe I need an outside project. So, um, so I signed on for it. I, I didn't have a book proposal. I didn't have an outline. I just had an incredible curiosity. And I let it take me where it would take me. Biographers always tell us that they end up living with the subjects that they write about. So you spent four and a half years living with Nancy Reagan. What did you come away thinking about uh, her as a person as a result of that? Um, I think she was, she had her flaws. She had her demons. Um, She was just extremely complicated. But that she was the 
exact partner that Ronald Reagan needed. And that I really do believe that the country owes him a debt for choosing, choosing who he did as his life partner. How did the book come to be called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan? Um, we, oh my goodness, we went around on so many titles and just nothing was kind of hitting us, you know, just nothing sort of hit really the, the big scope of the book. And this was finally um, suggested by Jonathan Karp, the CEO at Simon & Schuster. And I like the word triumph because it also suggests struggle. It also suggests pain. And certainly, you know, along with the high points of her life, there was so much of that as well. Is this your first book? It sure is. I don't know if there will ever be a second. <laughs> What's the debut been like? I've been so gratified by the reviews. Um, so far, at least, uh, they've, they've all been just absolutely positive. It's gotten starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and Booklist. Uh, Oprah's put, put it on our list of books to watch for the spring, as USA Today and Newsweek have. I just hope that people will, as I did, put aside what you think you know about this woman and just sort of go along for the journey. Karen Tumulty, thank you for spending an hour with C-SPAN. The book, again, is The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks for listening. You might also be interested in our newest podcast, Book Notes Plus. C-SPAN's Brian Lamb is taking the concept from his long-running book note series and tailoring it for a podcast audience. You'll hear a mix of new interviews with nonfiction authors and historians and some favorites from the Book Notes archives. You can find Book Notes Plus wherever you get your podcasts.